This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network. We all are leaders. We all have a capacity to lead, right? There's kind of these notions of leadership based on your resume, right? But I think that's a notion that we need to really begin shedding, right? Because I think it elevates a certain, like certain resumes or titles mean you're a leader. And and that's not really my experience of some of the most impactful people in my life that I've worked with, you know, aren't actually at the top of organizations, right? Or don't have fancy titles. And so I think everyone, and particularly as I think about uh, young women leaders, whether it's in college or right out of college, every day is an opportunity to wake up and uh, change the world for the better. everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Redefining Ambition. I'm your co-host, Jamie Vinnick, founder and president of the Women's Network, and Katya Shmurhan, a co-host of this podcast, joins me in welcoming our next guest, Lee Morgan. Lee is the Chief Strategy and Operating Officer at Neotero Foundation, a Seattle-based nonprofit dedicated to protecting and securing Indigenous people's ownership of vital ecosystems. Lee has had a fascinating career thus far, and you'll hear how her non-traditional path took many turns along the way. Prior to joining the Neotero Foundation, Lee served as the Chief Operating Officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a foundation with nearly $43 billion in assets and an annual budget of $5 billion. Casual. She previously served as an associate chancellor at UC San Francisco and the VP and global head of human resources at Genentech, a biotech company. She's a graduate of Duke University and played on the women's basketball team, which she'll share more about. Enjoy the episode and make sure to connect with us on Instagram at Redefining Ambition and at the Women's.network. I am so excited to introduce and welcome our next podcast guest to Redefining Ambition. Welcome to the pod, Lee. Thanks for coming. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We have so much to get to. You have a really incredible career and fascinating backstory. So I want to jump right into things. Where did you grow up? Talk to us a little bit about your upbringing, your background before you headed off to Duke, where you studied religion, played on the basketball team, and started thinking about where your career interests lie. Great. So so again, thanks for having me. And uh, I am coming to you now from beautiful Seattle. I do have a, a beautiful backdrop that I'm in now. It's sunny in winter, and when it's sunny... Uh, here in Seattle in the winter, it's heaven, right? Because you get this beautiful water and mountains all around you and a beautiful nature. So the reason I mentioned that, I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. So Washington State is, is my home. And I moved around a little bit as a kid, as my father, who worked in the pulp and paper industry, uh, which is no longer here in the Northwest, by the way. It's migrated to the Southeast. But we moved around. He was in manufacturing. So um, one big part of my childhood was, you know, moving to a new, mostly small small towns and uh, learning how to 
you know, assimilate in and into a new environment, new school and a new cadre of friends. So that certainly has had an impact on how I think about engaging with communities that I'm a part of. Uh, But my last pit stop was my uh, hometown of Port Angeles, Washington. Throughout my childhood, I was always active outside and always very active in sports. And my parents encouraged my sister and I Uh, to do all sorts of sports. And so it turns out I'm a really good athlete and excelled in basketball, tennis, and soccer. And I earned a scholarship to Duke University in the late 80s to go out and play basketball there. But sports has always been a big part of my life. I would say I have a really close-knit family still based here in the Northwest. So you earned a scholarship. You went off to Duke University. The lessons you learned, leaderships you gain through uh, sportsmanship, through playing on a team, are skills that I'm sure you've applied to your career and to other situations and environments you've been in throughout your life. What was that experience like playing basketball for Duke? And generally speaking, your, your college life? Like, how did you maximize your experience in going to Duke and trying out a brand new coast and state and culture? And I want to add an asterisk that you're speaking to a Syracuse alum. And one of the best memories I have from college is when we beat Duke basketball, men's basketball, (laughs) on the buzzer beater. And everyone storms the court. It was so fun. Um, so there's a lot of rivalry here. <laughs> <laughs> that is so good. And I, um, I have always feared the orange. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> watching the Duke men's team, right. And those great iconic games over the years. So I love that you witnessed that and stormed the court. I can tell you, we have our own list on the Dukey side of those similar games. Um, <laughs> Yeah, two great schools, uh, both academic schools and actually really great athletic schools as well. At Duke, it's not just basketball, but um, many other sports, they've they've excelled. My time at Duke was really special and it had a big impact on my life as uh, most or many college experiences do. I remember arriving with my mom in August and showing up and thinking, after the third day, we were moving into the gym and I met my coach and my roommate, who was also my the other freshman on the women's basketball team. And I remember just how hot it was, right? This was North Carolina, this kid coming from the Northwest, where we really don't have humidity or the heat like you get in the Southeast. And I remember thinking, how do people live like this? <laughs> And, you know, sure enough, in the next few years, I actually learned to love uh, the heat and humidity. I ended up loving working out in that environment because you get a really great sweat, you know. And and so now I'm definitely a heat seeker and sun lover, and I do not mind humidity. So that's one thing. But it really was quite a culture shock for me uh, to arrive in the southeast. Uh, the first thing I, I noticed that's very different from the northwest was how racially diverse the Southeast is. 
as uh, a, a large and vibrant African-American community at that time, a smaller Latino community. Now it's very robust across the Southeast due to the um, agriculture industry there. But at the time, I also noticed that the campus, most of the students were white. This is a private institution, very expensive to go to. And most of the students were from the mid-Atlantic mid or Northeast. And a lot of kids from uh, private schools, um, from boarding schools, which for me was, you know, as kind of a middle-class, upper-middle-class kid who went to public schools in the Northwest, it was just this new world for me. And then to see that most of the service workers were African-American, and then to get to know uh, the city that's near and dear to my heart, Durham. But when I first moved there, the student body at Duke was very um, separate and, and didn't really venture into the community that much. Now it's very different and it's a wonderful thing. But just to see the segregation of who lived where uh, of the African-American community, the white community, that was very stark to me and I didn't really understand it. So I wanted to learn more about that. And that formed the basis of a lot of my um, studies of trying to understand the role of religion in society. It also uh, led me, in addition to some summer experiences I had, to get involved in social activism. And so then the other side of that, of my experience, of course, was being a student athlete. And I'm just a gym rat, right? I, I, uh, I don't play basketball anymore. I, I hurt my knee enough times that's off the table. So now I prefer to get on a bike and do other things. But I loved and still love basketball. And so more time in the gym, the better. And um, being a part of teams, I love that. We played in the ACC, which at the time, actually, Syracuse was not a member of the ACC. I mean, that's, way, that's how much I'm dating myself. But you know, it was just top notch. It was SEC and then the ACC for women's basketball, right? So I played against um, Don Staley, who was just one of the best point guards ever, you know, Olympic uh, gold medalist. She's now a great coach. Vicki Bullitt, you know, she was on the Olympic team and she was at the University of Maryland. I mean, most of these players, they literally jumped over my head. I mean, seriously. Uh, so I mostly saw their belly button when they were slamming over me, but I competed, right? I started three years, had a pretty decent career, still have a, a record or two um, on the books, but really competed against some outstanding athletes. I was, by all accounts, uh, an outstanding high school player, really a, a, a standout star in Washington State. And then I got to Duke in the ACC, and I found that I wasn't quite as fast compared to others, and I was a little little shorter compared to uh, my peers. And so, one of the things I had to learn was how can I compete effectively when my physical and athletic gifts really aren't quite as outstanding as they were in, in high school. So, thinking about that, learning about that has actually had a big impact on my career to identify and focus on those things that I can control and influence, right? That, and how do I play to my strengths in any situation? First of wow. all, wow, that's an amazing story that you shared. I found your awareness opening in college. I think that that's something that's really relatable for a lot of college students. And I'm so curious if you could speak a bit more about 
how you got involved in community work and like activism in college, um, maybe specifically about some of those summer internships or just experiences at, at Duke? Yeah, well, I, you know, I have to say growing up, I was always, uh, even in high school, politically active or interested in world affairs, if you will. And so when I went to Duke, it was kind of a natural thing for me to pay attention to the world around me, right? And I turned 18 so I could vote for the first time, which was really exciting. And so I've always been very active and attentive, if you will, to world affairs and politics. My sensitivities and awareness, of course, has deepened and grown, right? But I did have two very figural experiences. One was after my sophomore year, I had an opportunity to uh, do summer school in Israel. Mm. Um, And late my freshman year, I had kind of stumbled onto, I had my first elective. And so I took a class called the Old Testament uh, slash Hebrew Bible, right? Depending on your perspective, different names for that, um, that, that book. And it just opened up uh, for me, the intersectionality between religion and politics and place and language, right? And I was raised in a secular Northwestern household, right? So I never went to church. So I thought, let me read about this. Let me let me read this book, you know, this work that has had a big impact on the world. And I did. So I ended up getting to know one of the professors who also loves sports. Carol Myers, and she said, why don't you do this internship? So I did it. So I land in Jerusalem. Gentile goes to the Holy Land with this wonderful group of other students, Gentiles and Jews. And, you know, it was just this fabulous group. And the world just, you know, in real time, 360, you know, 3D, it was to experience the politics of that part of the world. And both the sparkiness, the challenges, the deeply, deeply rooted differences. And then on the other side, of course, experience how strong um, connections can be made through dimensions of difference, right? And that was mostly through relationships, not just with my classmates, but with some of the Palestinians that we got to meet who were living in Jerusalem also. So that was really eye-opening. And then the second experience I had, uh, the next summer I did an internship in New York City working with the homeless. And so here I am, you know, previous year, go abroad, living in Jerusalem and sitting there. And then I show up in New York City, living in Brooklyn, commuting to uh, Upper Manhattan, 180th, (laughs) to work with the homeless there. And uh, what an experience to live in that urban environment, right? To see there and get kind of a firsthand understanding of the intersectionality of public policy Mm-hmm. and the impact on uh, the flow of resources or lack thereof to support people really living on the edge of homelessness and who are homeless, the dimension of gender um, around how that is so pernicious in homelessness, less visible, but very uh, visible. And then, you know, just meeting people and, who were homeless and working with formerly homeless at the agency I was at. It, it's like this, these are real people with real lives and real stories, right? And so if you just stay at really a public policy level, sometimes you lose sight of that these real people are impacted by decisions about um, policy and funds and how bureaucracies are efficient or not efficient, right? And how can we really center um, 
both individual experience, but understand we have to think in the aggregate around trends and patterns. So that was very important for me. And, you know, I left both experiences, you know, fired up. Let's make change, be part of the change, you know, and that kind of, uh, I remember in my 20s, I was this, you know, capitalism sucks and, you know, <laughs> like boom. And, you know, and over time, I've worked across sector. I've learned a lot about business, about how markets function, you know, the role of philanthropy, policy, geopolitics, certainly at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And, you know, it's really helped me understand how we must, must work across sector for lasting change. And to work across sector, we have to be able to work across dimensions of difference mm -hmm. well and effectively. And that's where I actually think folks in their 20s, you know, teens and 20s and 30s have, are so much better equipped than I was when I went out in the workforce, right? Because you're used to seeing and, and hearing different languages and cultures. So I'm pretty excited about uh, following your lead, by the way. Um, well, I want to first touch on the separation that invisibly is felt between a lot of, especially private institutions and cities upon which they're occupied. I felt very distanced from the Syracuse community outside the bounds of campus. And you had to make an active effort to really work within the community and, and see what's going on on the grounds because it's very easy to feel separated from community work and from what is going on on campus. It's just a completely different life. And the contrast between opportunity of what is ahead of you when you are a college student and when you get into the community and immerse yourself in a lot of the problems that are going on. How do you feel like in looking back at your experiences in uh, interning in Israel and interning in New York City with a homeless um, population, how did that influence your perspective on later the work you've done within the space of philanthropy and with specifically regards to relationship building with understanding the importance that things come down to relationships and understanding how people interact and communicate. So infusing all of that into your perspective. Well, a, a couple of thoughts there. Um, your, your last comments are about kind of integration, right? Head and heart. Yes. And then there's kind of your daily life, right? Particularly as a, as, a, as a student. And one of the things that my experiences have taught me, um, often through uh, failure, right? Or not doing this well, but working in and with diverse communities, work intentionally seeking out opportunities to work and be with in my personal life and also professionally, um, in multicultural diverse settings. And I found as a leader that diversity of experience, cognitive diversity, one's life experience, it, it impacts how you show up, right? Mm -hmm. It impacts how you think and how you experience and process information. And so if we wanna build great organizations, if we wanna have effective public policy, then it really requires engaging in dialogue and problem solving across dimensions of difference. And so that's where, um, as a student, I was lucky. And, and honestly, this wasn't as 
conscious as it is for me now, but taking, uh, work, studying abroad. I mean, it was just like this amazing experience, right? And then working with the homeless. So whatever for your listeners, right, who are thinking, how can I create those settings? Just think about the opportunities on campus or in the communities where uh, it might be people who think differently from you or different backgrounds. It, it, it takes that energy, you know, catalyze and accelerate that energy to to go to that meeting, right? Or jo- now join the Zoom, the Zoom. Hopefully we'll have in-person meetings. But look for opportunities that um, where you can be in situations with people who think differently than you or who have been in different life experiences than you. It's most often humbling. I found I, it's just funner, more joy-filled life when my social circle, my community, the people I work with, I love working globally. To me, it's a real, real rush. You know, I find it helps me be a better person. And, and I think I can have better impact as a leader. Wow. It sounds like you are, have already reflected on so many incredible lessons that you learned in college. But can you speak now a bit about your career trajectory outside of college? Yeah, where you're the transition of post-grad life to just beginning in the workplace and where you took your career next. Yeah, so that you know, there's a book that was recently out by a guy named David Epstein. It's called Range. And I think Bill Gates put it on his his list of books. And I always peek at what Bill Bill's reading. Um, so I read the book and I thought to myself, oh my gosh. That's me. <laughs> so let me unpack that. Um, his and and I think the author might actually be a, a Gen Xer like myself. But my career path has not been linear by any means. I've worked across sector, and I didn't set out thinking, "Hey, I want to work across multiple sectors." I actually started out thinking, "How can I be a part of change?" And so I worked mm-hmm. in some small nonprofits, paying attention to energy and wanting to, you know, be a social activist. And so that's what I did. I worked in some small nonprofits. And then an exciting thing happened. Uh, for me, it was exciting for many of us, not, not everyone, but um, Bill Clinton was elected and he was in his, I think, 40s when he was elected. And so there's this big generational shift, not unlike for some people who got excited about Obama, right, of this generational shift. There's like this biracial, this African-American identified and biracial man. Like there's something new here that hasn't happened. And Clinton bought it, um, brought the vision for AmeriCorps, a domestic Peace Corps type program. And I thought, well, I want to do that. And so I applied for a job uh, working for Governor Jim Hunt, who was administering this national program in North Carolina. And I swear to God, the day before my interview, I was protesting outside the governor's mansion (laughs) against some policy I didn't like. And then I remember I actually put on a skirt and got dressed up and went to the governor's office and interviewed for this job thinking there's no way I'm going to get this job because and I'm not sure I want it. Right. Because one of his policies I didn't like. Anyway, I got the job. And what that did for me, though, it really opened up for me the potential of working in other sectors, not just the social change sector, but how you can really make change through any different position that you're in. 
right? And so that was really clear to me. And then I I wanted to, how do you make change stick, right? Because I felt like the work we were doing, some of it was sticking and some wasn't. And someone said, well, you can learn about that in graduate school. So I was like, well, that's great. Well, how do I do that? So I, I got a master's in, in uh, the applied behavioral sciences. I, well, who can I learn from? Well, the corporate sector really cares about sustainable change. I was like, well, they're all mean and evil people. I can't do that. I'm <laughs> thinking when I say that. So sure enough, I got an, an internship, a graduate internship in big pharma, which was mm-hmm. like, you know, you know, who works in big pharma? Well, I, I, my dad's a, a, a scientist, right? I grew up in kind of rational man household. I love working with scientists and I flourished and I was around people who really cared about curing diseases, mm-hmm. right? And I realized, well, they're not really the enemy and what, what's happening here. So I started learning about business and I started learning about how do you drive change at scale of a and, you know, we had some mergers and acquisitions. Oh, my gosh, we're going from, you know, 40,000 to 80,000. How does that work? And then people would look at me. How do we do it, Lee? And I was like, as if I know? Well, OK, I guess I, <laughs> I OK, maybe I do know a few things. So that was really it, you know. Um, and then eventually I ended up on the West, back in the West Coast, back closer to family. And uh, I got into one of, you know, these iconic companies, which was Genentech, which was and probably remains the world's greatest biotech company, and helped scale that from 5,000 to 11,000 in three years. And then another that we were bought. And then all of a sudden, it's merger and acquisition, you know, part of this larger thing. And my roles kept expanding. Turns out I have some leadership skills. Um, and boom, right? And then I, woman I worked with, a great leader, um, went to University of California, San Francisco. She said, can you help me? I said, sure. So I accepted a role there. And then she went to the Gates Foundation, right? So one thematic here is that I learned I love to lead scale, uh, purpose-based organizations that change the world for the better. That's my mission. That's what I discovered. That's what I do well. And I'm broadly agnostic to sector, but passionate, passionate um, about building companies that really change the world. So then I had an opportunity to be at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which was just absolutely an amazing experience to, and this notion of the geopolitical dynamics, which are so much a part of what we dealt with when you, when you're trying to get out $5 billion a year uh, to make the world a better place, you really start working at multiple levels, right? With heads of state, with massive, um, bilateral institutions. And, you know, then you're trying to lead a 1500 person organization. So that was great. And now uh, I'm in another iconic world leading organization called Neotero Foundation. Uh, That came about through a relationship. I told the founder I'd help him for three months, found this iconic organization. And it's three years later, we're (laughs) we're going strong. So. Wow. Um, A lot to unpack there. So you are you, you made a comment, you were agnostic to sector. And so many young people feel like they have to box themselves into a particular sector and can't necessarily view beyond that. And so they limit their opportunities to wherever the sector's tr- traditional trajectory might take them. You had a different approach and your t- career took so many different twists and turns. 
what were some of the underlying themes that you draw parallels between the varying sectors and what were some of your key strengths you bought, brought to all those different positions? You sound extraordinarily relationship-oriented, mission-driven. Uh, you're clearly, based off your career path, uh, a really motivating leader. What were some of the key skill sets can transcend between different sector lines? Such a good question. You, you mentioned the relationship orientation. I, I think that's something I I gravitate to, but I've also learned as a leader that relationships matter. And so actually in college, a friend of mine told me, um, take classes from great professors, that a great professor is more important than the actual topic that you're learning about. And I thought, that's crazy. <laughs> but I found it to be true, right? Because a great professor can bring bring some topic really to life. And so I found also in my career of, you know, it's much like a mattress. Those of us who have discretionary funds, which is not most people, if you have discretionary funds to buy a really good mattress, buy a good mattress. And the reason is you spend half of your life on that mattress, okay? So how you spend your time matters. So during our waking hours, surround yourself with people that you like, you respect, and that you can learn from. And so that has been a real core part for me is pay attention to you know, my bosses. I, I, I've left jobs where I haven't really found value alignment with my you know, boss. But I can tell you the vast majority of jobs that I've had, I've worked with my bosses have been somebody that I respect, I can learn and grow from. So like great people matter. And then you wanna be around people more often than not in your work uh, that you trust and you respect. You don't have to like everyone, but the notions of trust and respect, right? So what we do during our waking hours, make it as fun as possible and as meaningful as possible, right? And so if, we, if, if, if you have the opportunity, sometimes you're in a situation for a year or two, you're like, oh, I don't really like it, but I need to because it's a means to an end, right? You're stabilizing yourself or you're, you're just getting out in the workplace. You're beginning to earn some money. That's fine. But over the span of, of years, what I really want for listeners is to be really picky and as thoughtful as possible about surrounding yourself in workplaces that you really where you like folks. And that's important because I want listeners to be able to bring their full selves, their full talents, right? So when, when you're in places where there's high trust and a level of respect, you're more likely to bring your talents, which then contribute to the tasks at hand. So that I think is really important. And then I think another element is think about culture fit. So give you one great example. I worked at a co- this big pharmaceutical company called Glaxo Welcome. And then we had a merger. This is when I did my graduate internship. We had a merger and we became GlaxoSmithKline. Where these names come from, I don't know. But that was our new name. But this big pharma, right? And the new company, we were trying to put together two cultures. And the new company, the other side was Smith. Klein Beecham, and we were Glaxo Welcome. And the, the culture from the other company that we merged with was very hierarchical. Mm. And one of the unwritten rules was don't speak up in a meeting unless your boss knows what you're going to say. And from the company that I came from, which was Glaxo Welcome, 
the culture was speak up in a meeting because then we get better ideas. It would be disrespectful if you didn't speak up because that meant we didn't get as good of ideas. Can you see how that's different? And so eventually I ended up leaving that organization because more of the kind of hierarchical culture tended to win out. And that was not a good fit for me. It was a good fit for some people, but not for me. So I left that situation. I was planful. I saved money so that I could do it. So get culture fit. That's what I would want people because we want people to thrive and bring their best self. So wherever possible, make sure you're in a culture that really matches with um, where you can thrive. Fantastic advice. What I love about this podcast is that we are speaking with some of the best leaders in the world. And I would consider you to be in that category, someone who clearly based off your career trajectory has done a fantastic, really inspiring job at motivating teams, motivating organizations, focusing on the mission, really the culture. Lee is so humble. You were the associate chancellor at UC San Francisco. You were the COO at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You were the VP and um, global head of human resources at Genentech. You held very powerful positions. And from your perspective, what do you think truly made you stand out as an outstanding leader? And how can young people really hone in on those skills? Like what advice would you offer to someone just beginning their career who doesn't consider themselves to be a leader, but has the opportunity to start developing their leadership skills? The first thing I would say is the notion of leadership. I want to debunk and and demystify that a bit. We all are leaders. We all have a capacity to lead, right? There's kind of these notions of leadership based on your resume, right? But I think that's a notion that we need to really begin shedding, right? Because I think it elevates a certain, like certain resumes or titles mean you're a leader. And, And that's not really my experience, of some of the most impactful people in my life that I've worked with, you know, aren't actually at the top of organizations, right? Or don't have fancy titles. And so I think everyone, and particularly as I think about uh, young women leaders, whether it's in college or right out of college, every day is an opportunity to wake up and uh, change the world for the better. And that can be done by self-care, preferencing and centering self-care, especially true in this time of COVID with so many stresses. It can be done in your interpersonal relationships. It can be done in the ways that you support others, serve your community and in your organization. So that would be one thing. I would say in terms of my career and the roles that I have had, which have been uh, marked by pretty significant responsibility and accountability, the things that are best are having an ability to work across dimensions of difference. I'd say that that is just a huge thing, right? Of having the ability to move in and out of different communities, listen well. I think there's a, a notion of code switching um, that I want to offer. And code switching is a, is a phrase that for me describes skills of being able to walk into a room, whether it's uh, with finance people, 
right? Whether it's with community activists, whether it's with folks in another sector, each sector and community has a language, right? And, and you pick up different languages. So like, I remember about 10 years ago, uh, finance language felt like Russian to me and I don't speak Russian <laughs> now. Now I'm very fluid and facile in this, right? Cause I, cause I, I've learned, but being able to code switch of walking in and listening and understanding, picking up language and then asking, what does it mean when you say that, right? And then also mimicking back language, not in a fake way, but in an authentic way from a place of curiosity and from a place of authenticity of listening and learning. So code switching is important. Now there's a shadow side to code switching, which is for women, oftentimes with black indigenous people of color, we'll talk about code switching and experience it as actually being a burden because we're not often a majority in some some rooms and particularly in halls of power. And so it becomes a burden that we have to be the one to code switch, right? In order to um, engage and, and, and have influence. So code switching is an asset in a town, but it also has a cost. Uh, it can have a cost depending on your identity, but it's just something to be aware of, right? Effectiveness in leading people is ability to understand language and, and work across difference. The other thing, um, where if you have time, it's important as a woman leader to prepare, prepare well for meetings. Why? Because as a woman, there's still a lot of unconscious bias. This is probably true for a BIPOC identified woman, right? As a white woman, I deal with this, but our women of color deal with this 10 times more is, you know, you need to be prepared, know your stuff, walk in the room, right? And so not everyone has the opportunity or time or resources to prepare for certain situations. And if that's the case, then fake it till you make it, right? Uh, be confident, take your space, and trust your instincts. The other thing is prioritize, right? Um, to really prioritize and stay focused on that, which gives you energy. And so I have always um, paid attention to the mission and purpose of the organizations I've been a part of. And that I find that to be energizing. And places and spaces where I felt like there was an energy suck, right? I just paid attention to that. And so then I could make informed choices about how to move to a culture or an organization that felt uh, more aligned. So stay focused and prioritize paying attention to your energy. So those three things I, I would offer. Um, there's other things. Um, empathy, I think as a leader, people will follow you if you are genuine and care about them, right? Mm -hmm. And you can do that and also be strategic and make hard calls. You know, I've laid off people I've shut down entire sites um, and that's really hard. Um, but if you can show up with integrity and empathy, then that's literally the only path through when you have to make some of these hard decisions that you really sometimes um, would rather not make as a leader. Wow. As a leader of your generation, how do you see your role or sense of responsibility to upcoming generations, especially upcoming female leaders? This is so much top of my mind, literally every day. Um, it's, I feel hugely accountable and responsible and really joy-filled at the thought of having an impact and, and helping young women leaders. Um, I have benefited from women who are, I would say, baby. I'm a Gen Xer, baby boomers that I've worked with have 
really helped mentor me and have opened doors and then have also often given me their seat at the table, right? So that's what I try to do um, in my roles and in my personal life. I, I'm a mentor to two dynamic young women. One is a Shia Muslim who lives in Afghanistan and gotten to know her really well. I was um, honored by a an honorary degree at the Asian University of Women in 2017, and she was my student guy. And so this is in Bangladesh. I've gotten to know her and her family. And so, but that's another thing of just making time for that. We have regular monthly calls. Another young woman that I met in South Africa, who is near and dear to my heart. Um, I met her on a business trip and she, when I say mentor her, she meant, they both mentor me. Let's get really clear, right? Because Again, I think it's a two-way street. The generations younger than mine, you know, I'm just like, if you're driving a bus, just can you open the door? That's my feeling, uh, you know. So it goes both ways. But yeah, this is a huge priority. It's we, we need to pull up, offer a hand, and give up our seat. And this is particularly true as a white woman leader in positions of power to be very mindful about the privilege um, that I have, unearned privilege, and to deepen my own awareness of my own racial identity and positionality. And so that also is a big part of my life of making sure that um, I am an advocate and an ally for women who come from different backgrounds than I do. Thank you for saying that. What are you most excited about for Generation Z? You know, Generation Z has been hit, every generation has been hit hard by the pandemic. Class of 2020, graduated into the worst job market in modern history. A lot of Gen Zers who are in college are really suffering and the prospects of their careers is certainly damaged by the current job market. But what are you seeing, referring to any trends or patterns or observations you've made in working with and getting to know folks in the Generation Z that you're excited about? and that you hope to see help contribute to greater change? Such a good question. Um, I'll answer that and actually broaden to Gen Y, right? And Gen Z, because as a Gen Xer, I am, again, if you're driving the bus, just please open the door, right? Because I want to get on it. That's just my general view. And, And part of the reason I'm so bullish about this is, a few reasons. First of all, particularly for Gen Z, like their COVID has has upset the world, right? And the resiliency that your generation is building right now through hard times, right? And and the adaptive resiliency. And so whether it's you know having online classes, right? Mostly crappy, right? It's also building in you a capacity that we don't even know what the upsides are, but it's gonna be, a, one of the upsides is ability to connect with people through different forums, right? Through Zoom, right? Or through social media, et cetera. So I think we won't really know for a decade or so around what those kind of nuanced skill sets, how that's able to be applied in the workforce. But certainly one of this is a being adaptive and adaptable as situations change quickly. And so that's an incredible asset um, when we think about building great organizations, right? Or, or building societies, right? That are equitable and just and where people can thrive and bring their, their best selves to their families and their work and their communities. So I'm excited about that. 
The other thing is the increased focus on mental health. And I think this is really, really important because when I was going through college, we didn't really talk about mental health that much. And due to COVID and also generationally, I think um, there's more awareness about how mental health is really important one to address. I know, I think your generation talks about your mental health with each other more openly. Guys in your in your generation are more open to talking about how their feelings, and that's actually a really big thing. So I think the awareness of mental health and how important it is to, to one's well-being and ability to function well in society, and then access resources, um, I think that's a real positive thing. And, and so I, I would also say that your generation and Generation Y, you've grown up with images in the media social media of multicultural communities, right? So even if you are in a community that's fairly homogenous based on kind of class or race, when you turn on the TV or when you um, get onto social media, you have access to images and people from many different backgrounds. I mean, I think about even gender identity, right? And there's been a lot of studies for Gen, Gen Y and Gen Z about how like, it's kind of like, yeah, people have different gender identities. Big deal, right? <laughs> well, my generation, it was actually a big deal, right? People got killed. You know, there were laws, right? And so these are very natural and normal, right? And I'm not saying that there's still not a level of people being uncomfortable. But broadly as a generation, you're used to dimensions of difference, expressions of identities, and there's a general acceptance right, of that difference. And that's going to serve your generation so, so well in the workplace. I would love to just quickly ask a follow-up question with that specifically in mind. I think for my generation, especially the gender identity or just focusing on identity as a whole, we feel very comfortable speaking with members of our own generation about that. But I think there is a sense of fear or intimidation with entering into the workforce, which is more of a traditional world um, with people who may not be as aware to how important identity is. And I think there definitely is a sense of fear of being authentic to oneself when entering into more traditional career paths. And how do you think we, our generation can work with um, members of other generations or just more traditional institutions to help reconcile those differences? That's such a great question. And I'll offer advice that I wish I would have internalized sooner in my career. Be the change you want to happen, Mm. right? And so where you have some fear around that, that's understandable to me. And I, I want you or others in your generation it's important to pay attention to that, right? And find support systems, which may be outside of organizations or just with other friends or peers. Again, the metaphor, if you're driving the bus, please, when I knock, I would love for you to open that door, right? Because I want on it. And I'm a leader who sees how the fluency that your generation has, right? And comfortableness with, dimensions of difference because we all have multiple identities right that's the thing and we get to just say 
yes to them all, right? Yes. And holding multiple realities. That's what your generation of Gen Y, you're, you're, you're more facile by nature because you've grown up in a world that that's just a quality that's much more visible, right? And so Generation X and baby boomers, um, I would say Gen X, I'd like to say my generation is a little more facile and, and fluid there. But I really just want to encourage folks, speak your truth and be allies for each other, right? Knowing that others might feel some of that fear. And that's where you can sh- show up and be allies, right? But believe me, the insights and awareness and ability to hold multiple realities at the same time, it's a huge asset because we're also seeing the blurring of traditional sector boundaries, right? And so while this is something that is a generational thing, it's also in the marketplace, right? So where we used to have verticals in healthcare, we now just not healthcare, it's health tech, where technology and healthcare, it's a blurring of sector boundaries that 10 years ago we couldn't have imagined, right? Mm-hmm. Or there's finances here and then there's telecommunication. Well, now we have fintech, right? Uh, and so this is actually not just unique to your generation, but we're finding that these sectors are blurring. And so when we think about building great companies, we actually need the kind of fluency that Gen Y and Gen Z, you know, that's the water you swim in. Being able to hold realities, to switch your language, to work across dimensions of difference. So it's a huge asset. It's not just a huge asset 10 years in. It's a huge asset the first time you walk into the workplace. Thank you. Thank you so much for just acknowledging that. I think it's a conversation that, we aren't really comfortable having yet. And I'm so glad that we were able to talk about this on the podcast. It makes me really, really happy. Very proud. Well, you should feel proud, right? And there's (laughs) a, uh, your generation has been through a lot already, um, seen a lot and a lot of pressures. And um, through that, the world will be well-served as you get into the workplace and particularly as you progress and assume roles of greater and greater responsibility. It's going to, it's not just going to serve organizations, it's going to serve society, it's going to serve the planet, right? Of, I'll say also, um, your sensitivity around climate change, so important, right? I mean, we're at, the, we're at a tipping point. Your generation in Gen Y takes for granted that the rest of us have been screwing things up, right? And our policies and funds flow and regulations and head in the sand, climate deniers, right? Uh, so you all understand this and the ideas that you bring, uh, the innovations, the ways of thinking about building sustainable societies and sustainable everything, right? And then use your money. That's the other thing. You're a huge, I know that companies pay attention to where are people spending money, right? And, and there's over, I was just on a call the other day with um, green climate investors, you know, I was at a a conference this time last year in Costa Rica, maybe it was earlier in February, a natural capital summit. And I was there with a bunch of folks that controlled about a trillion dollars in wealth, right? And they were all piling money into uh, sustainable green, you know, investments um, in food and agriculture and fishing and sustainable materials and that sort of thing. So there's a lot, a lot of money piling in in that, which is good, right? And your generation has, is going to bring a lot of unique skill sets and ideas 
about how to create some of these different renewable energy systems and think differently about use of resources. I was really struck by what you had a little earlier mentioned that you are in particular mentoring two young women. And when people think I want to create change in this world often, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, they think on this big grand scale, like how can I create an institute change that will affect everyone? And I think a myth is that if you're impacting positively, even just one person, it's infectious and that has a positive impact on those surrounding that one person. You have worked in organizations that are tackling some of our greatest challenges that face planet Earth and the people living on the planet. Climate change, even sanitation, women's equality, and in thinking about the people who are often governing, especially in the United States, who are dictating climate policies, they're not <laughs> uh, aligning with where the science is and the urgency upon which it requires to really tackle a lot of these pressing issues. And often folks in our generation feel like it's going to be too little too late where um, it's going to be too late to catch up to the speed where um, it's going to require great policy to combat these issues. How do you approach huge issues, thinking about it, not just on a macro level, but also a micro level and tackling problems, trying to put forth the best solutions? Yeah, good question. I think there's kind of a multiple approaches that are needed, right? There's no one uh, approach. And I think that's, as we get back to the generations, right, your generation and generation Y, you've grown up in this um, hyper-connected, multicultural world, right? And so the, we require, in order to address issues of climate, right, and the perils, because really climate change is actually driving war, right, in the Middle East, lack of water, right? People don't understand the intersectionality of these issues, right? And so you know, one thing at a personal level, I like to think at the personal level, interpersonal level, right? And then at organizations, and then we think at systems level, right? Systems around policy. So at a system level, I mean, I want everyone to vote. Get out and vote. Your vote matters. You guys, you know, just your vote matters. And I'm so passionate about voting. I'm less I'm more agnostic to who you vote for, right? I actually do have very strong opinions about who I vote for, but what I want for your generation and particularly young women, right, is to do your research and vote because who is sitting in halls of power making these regulations, right? It's not just elected officials, but who's getting appointed to head these agencies, right? That really competent people, we need competent people. We need people from diverse backgrounds. That impacts where money flows. And where money flows is where you actually see industries change their behaviors. So who you vote for. So be active, civic engagement. I can't tell you, right? Again, I'm excited. That's why I'm bullish because Gen Y and Gen Z, who you guys have a sensibility about this. Um, secondly, and particularly for young women leaders like yourselves and your listeners, Financial literacy. I want every young woman to feel confident that they can read a balance sheet, that they can understand 
things like the stock market does not mean the leading indicator of economic well-being in the world, right? It's one, but it's not the the it's not it. A basic concept, but like, well, why do you say that? Well, I want everyone to be able to know, right? Basic things like that. Why? Because when we think about policy change at a macro level and then even in organizations, understand financial incentives, how that impacts decisions that your boss is going to make, that your company, your nonprofit, how the flow of money impacts public policy, how it impacts lobbying, right? And all that sort of stuff. Big. It's huge. And so have some financial literacy. And I think that will really bode well and position um, young women well to, to have an even greater influence on issues related to climate and other these really hard, gnarly issues that require cross-sector solutions. Let's transition to our lightning round of questions. So favorite NBA and WNBA teams. Seattle Storm, WNBA, <laughs> without a doubt. And I, my favorite team is, uh, is the Seattle Supersonics. And yes, they do not exist anymore, but they're still my favorite team. <laughs> Dedicated to the home. I, we all appreciate that. Um, right. And what were a few of your favorite uh, quarantine activities? What you what got you through the worst of lockdown? Oh, um, being out in nature for sure. Uh, it's just been great. And then during these winter months, um, I have a Peloton. And so I'm actually in pretty great shape. <laughs> and it's gotten, it's got, it's really helped get me through. And then of course, just the connectivity to, you know, friends, family, beloved, all that has been, uh, I've stayed in, I, I'm very lucky in having a, a, a very close community to be a part of in a safe and distance and mass way, I might add. I love that. And what place would you like to travel to? Are you looking forward to post COVID? Two things are in scope. One is Cambodia and Angkor, the ancient city of Angkor, which I'm completely fascinated about. And also Greece, two places I haven't been. Wow. That sounds so lovely. And quickly, your favorite way to de-stress and relax. Uh, when it's sunny out, again, being in nature, cycling, golfing with dear hearts, beloved, all that kind of stuff is is exercise and sunny, warm spaces with dear hearts. That's that's it. Lovely. And what are you most proud of? Most proud of? Oh, I think just connection with, you know, just proud to be connected to such amazing people in my life, right? That's just a beautiful thing. I'm, I'm a... I'm a very happy person. I feel very sated uh, right now. And so that's a, it's a lovely, lovely place to be. You could leave our listeners with one lasting piece of advice. What would that be? Follow and pay attention to things that give you energy and joy. Just make time for that. Pay attention and follow things and people and experiences that give you energy and bring you joy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and opening up more about your background. I am so inspired by your story and everything you shared. And we're so excited to welcome you to the Women's Network and um, we'll definitely keep in touch. I look forward to that. And thanks uh, to both of you and everyone involved in the Women's Network.
Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Redefining Ambition. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends, and if there's anyone you think we should have on our show, let me know. Join me next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Redefining Ambition. We'll see you all then. Take care, everyone.